G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be back, even after a break that was very enjoyable, I must admit. Absolutely. Well, it's good to have you back. And well, do you want to even just tell us a little bit about where you've been over the last couple of weeks? If people have listened to the last episode, they may have got a little bit of an idea, but how have your last few weeks been? Well, your mum and I had the great opportunity of, of going to Antarctica of all places and it was just a wonderful boat trip and the wildlife, the landscapes, the glaciers, just so much about it was just wonderfully novel and refreshing. So come back ready to kick into the year. Absolutely. Well, we are a little way down the line in terms of getting into the year, Dad, and people will have realised that we have put out a couple of episodes. Of course, the last one we did record right at the very start of the year, but look, we thought this is maybe not a topic that we wanted to particularly rush into, so we didn't necessarily want to just shoot through an episode and quickly get one out before you left. We thought, oh, we'll, we'll give this a couple of weeks, and and oh, I must admit, Dad, I'm, I'm very thankful for the fact that even though you were away, you've, you've indulged me a little bit with today's topic because this is just something that I just find so absolutely fascinating and and something that I've found quite helpful anyway. Well, you've been cooking up quite a few ideas with this and it follows on from the themes of Stoic philosophy that we looked at in the last couple of episodes, you carrying through one episode, a supplementary episode when I was away, so I appreciate you carrying the can when I was away for that. So, um, but, but this follows on with a bit of a meaty dive into some of the antecedents of Stoic philosophy. Well, absolutely, and we've called today's episode Socrates to Stoicism, Modern Meaning from Ancient Greece. And, Dad, I usually ask you in this situation, what are we going to be talking about today? But, of course, this is something that you have almost let me run a little bit free with. I'm looking down now at just the copious pages of notes that we've prepared for today's episode. I've maybe gone a little bit overboard with that sort of thing. But uh, but as I say, this is just such a topic that hey, I find really just incredibly interesting and fascinating. And there are so many seeds, I think, from modern psychology that go back to ancient Greece. But I must admit it's something that I found quite helpful over the time. And, and maybe a, a period of a few years ago where I maybe had a little bit of, oh, I suppose, existential confusion in some ways doubt about you know where I was going in my life and what I was doing and and that was I think something that I also recognized in some of my friends particularly maybe some of my male friends who you know in their early to mid 20s and and had maybe been through university and and not got a degree out of that time and so we're just thinking you know what is my place in the world and you know what am I going to be doing And, and for me anyway I've found some of this philosophy sort of stuff from from ancient Greece just to be so helpful as in many ways a bit of a guide uh, because you know you can read some of this sort of stuff and, and realize that so many people from that long ago had in many ways similar problems to you or to me and and they were able to find some what I consider to be quite interesting solutions to that stuff so oh, I'm very interested in getting into this with you today. Yes, well, so much of modern psychology does relate to the wisdom from ancient Greeks, as you're getting it in the title of this episode. And so we're going to talk about Socrates. Well, when people do uh, clinical psychology masters, part of their training is about using a Socratic method. It could be called Socratic questioning or Socratic dialogue. We'll talk about that shortly, what it involves. But it's getting people to think 
and to have more awareness of their perspective and their reactions to things. And there's something so strengthening about this that's also shown up in research. The whole field of cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy was largely based on applying the wisdom from ancient Greece, being able to step back from our view of the world and being able to challenge and question our assumptions that sometimes are limiting or can cause difficulty for ourselves. Now, where were those techniques developed? Were they developed in universities in the 20th century? No, it's going back thousands of years. And when we're aware of that history and that background and what these philosophers were on about... I think that can help us with modern people looking at challenges in life and therapy generally, like you're saying, the benefit that you got from exploring philosophy. Well, a whole lot of psychology comes back to different kinds of principles and practices that developed through philosophy in an explicit way. And so, yeah, hopefully what we talk about today gives some real background, further understanding about how modern psychology therapy techniques developed. And I suppose there's a bit of a concept that I'm just fascinated in and it's going to come up a little bit later in today's podcast. We'll get into maybe exactly why this came up as an idea, but it's the idea, and this was something that was practised in ancient Greece, that philosophers are the physicians for the soul. So in many ways, you know, like we, we go to a doctor, we go to a physician who have got physical ailments. These days we'll go and maybe see a psychologist or a psychiatrist if we've got mental health difficulties, but... Back in the day, before sort of modern psychology and, and modern psychiatry, there, there wasn't a lot in terms of maybe places that you could go if you were, you know, feeling under the weather in a mental sense. So, well, for the ancient Greeks anyway, they used the philosophers as those people to, I suppose, really give them guidance in a lot of the maybe existential questions that are likely to come up over the course of a human life. Yes, and if we look at the link between philosophy and psychology, the early psychology departments around the world largely developed out of philosophy departments. Now, there was a certain point at which that seemed to not progress so far. For example, people sitting in an armchair reflecting on their experience. How much were we going to gain an understanding in life? Were there other ways that psychology should look at different kinds of experiments and also people's environment, the impact on behaviour? There are other things that we could look at. Well, when you follow through the psychological research, from around about the 1960s onwards... There's an enormous amount of research backing up the cognitive behavioural therapy approach and other approaches that followed on from that, like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behaviour therapy. There's a whole range of different therapies that follow on from cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy. And basically, they're drawing on some of the principles and strategies that we're going to discuss today that came from the philosophising of the Greeks like Socrates. So, yeah, great to be able to do a bit of a deeper dive into that area, Rowan. Well, absolutely. And, and look, it is something that there are going to be some elements of today's podcast that are a little bit more complicated in some ways. And, and we've really tried to simplify things where possible. It's probably not something that's my natural strong suit, Dad, is to, is to look at things and, and think of how you can condense them and all that sort of stuff. And we will try and get things into one episode today, but it may be the case that, that this plays out over a couple of episodes. So we'll have to wait and see. But may as well get into it anyway, Dad. And just to start uh, things off, it's worth maybe providing a little bit of context to the man that we're going to start with, Socrates. So Socrates, I believe, was born in 470 BC. So 
oh geez, almost coming up to right on uh, two and a half thousand years ago now, so a very long time ago, and lived in ancient Athens. So Athens was a, a city-state, obviously out of Greece, and Athens was a, a democracy at the time. And so what that meant was that basically if you were an adult Athenian male, uh, you would vote on just about every issue that came up. So any issue that came up, people would go down to the assembly and basically vote on on what they thought. But what that meant was that people in that society and in that culture who were able to argue rationally and, dare I say, had more access to wisdom in some ways, were able to essentially have more power over other people because they, for any topic that would come up, everyone would have to vote on it. The more that you could provide a rational argument and convince other people to vote along with you, well, the more you'd be able to get done in that society. So it was a society where rationality, argument wisdom were very important facets of that society and Socrates was someone who who really embodied that just about as much as anyone that we know today. So basically what Socrates would do, he would walk around the town in ancient Athens and he would ask people questions about themselves and he would basically try and ask people, as you say with the Socratic method, ask people questions in a way that made them aware of some of the contradictions that they held in terms of their philosophy. And so he'd go around almost questioning people, in some ways confronting people, in some ways arguing with people. And what he was trying to do through this process was to yeah, essentially get people to realise maybe where they had a few blind spots in their understanding of things or, or their philosophy around things. And and I suppose the first time that we meet Socrates in, in history is through his biography, which was written by his student Plato. So in, uh, in Socrates' biography, a few of Socrates' friends go off and see the Delphic Oracle. So the Oracle at Delphi was a prominent figure in ancient Greece because, of course, it was a society where people felt that they could interface with the gods. So t- in order to talk to the gods, they would go off and speak to the oracle. The oracle at Delphi was probably the most famous of these oracles. And, and the oracle would often give quite, in some ways, vague advice. So, you know, if you said, you know, I, I want to marry Penelope, and the Delphic oracle would say something just incredibly vague like, well, autumn comes after summer. And so you'd have to almost interpret that in a way and, you know, you'd go away and maybe marry Penelope and then retrospectively you'd think back afterwards and go, oh, there was a real message in this autumn following summer. So most of the time these were quite vague prophecies that were given by the oracles of the day. And so Socrates' friends went up and saw the Delphic Oracle and said, look, we've got a question about our friend Socrates. We want to know, is Socrates the wisest person in the world? And I'm sure they were expecting the oracle to say something like, oh, you know, no, there's plenty more people who are, you know, much more wise than Socrates. And the oracle came back with, yes, Socrates is the most wise of people. So the friends go back and tell Socrates this, and he's quite troubled by this because Socrates is someone who likes to think about things and, and he has in many ways, a a deep understanding and a knowledge about himself. And I suppose that introduces the first of the couple of quotes that we'll discuss that are are famous quotes by Socrates, and that is, know thyself. So I believe it was something that was written at Delphi, where the Oracle of Delphi was, but Socrates very much took that on as his own philosophy. And I suppose that idea of, of knowing thyself, it's not necessarily in a biographical sense, so it wasn't to, you know, go, oh, I was born here and then I spent this amount of time in this place or whatever it is, but more in terms of, I've heard it described as like an owner's manual. So Socrates was so interested in looking deeply within himself and almost trying to find, you know, what he's 
maybe pitfalls were, what his strengths were, what his weaknesses were? What was the kind of general makeup that made Socrates who he was? And it was that process which you described before as being known as the Socratic method. So do you want to just tell us a little bit more about, say, the Socratic method and how you would go about pursuing the Socratic method? Okay, well, in a therapy setting, it can come across in quite a gentle way and it could be quite confronting. But even if we ask someone, can you say a bit more about that? Or can you explain that a little bit more? Now, that might seem an obvious enough question, but a lot of that owes... Much to Socrates because he was interested in people going into a little bit more depth of reflection. So something that we might take for granted is part of a Socratic method. Can you say a bit more about that? We can also ask the person a classic cognitive therapy challenge or question, which is, what is the evidence for that? Such as if the person thinks, if I don't study for an enormous number of hours, well, I'll fail this exam and then I won't get the job I want and then, you know, like uh, my future direction will be really poor. So, so, for example, if the person has exaggerated thoughts, and that was oversimplifying it, but just asking the person, what is the evidence for that? Or what is the evidence that if you make a mistake, it's going to lead to these terrible consequences? Or what is the evidence that if you bring up this conflict situation with someone that then they won't like you? Or if someone's somewhat avoidant or non-assertive in their relationships? It's asking people deeper questions about things. But it also can be asking people to examine further the consequences of certain situations. So it might be, what is the worst thing about that? Oh, well, if I make this mistake, I'll look foolish. What would be the worst thing about that? Oh, well, then people won't respect me and then maybe I won't get different opportunities for job promotions. What would be the worst thing about that? Oh, well, then maybe I don't advance and don't gain so much income. I I, I can't um, pay my rent or something like that. It might be asking the person further and further questions and lead the person to be aware of how some of their fears might be exaggerated or they might be overgeneralising in their thinking Or the person might just say, I'm not competent. And so what, not competent in everything just because that situation didn't work out? Does that mean that you're not competent in any other situation at all? Basically, these different kind of questions that get people to reflect on their assumptions, their way of looking at things. And so that's a whole feature explicitly of cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, much of the basis of modern psychology. And there's a couple of things that I find so interesting with that. And the first is, I suppose, if you go back to ancient Athens, like the the gods and, you know, Zeus and Hera and figures like this were such an important part of their philosophy for life. But one of the things I find so interesting about Socrates is that he doesn't get into any sense of mythology about the gods in a way. Like it's a, it's a rational analysis based on his observations. I suppose one of the observations that he did have was just the degree to which people do have exaggerated thoughts about things and, and, and maybe even deceive ourselves is as far as I think Socrates would go with it. So he'd do things like, as you mentioned there, like that's, that's a very good example in a modern context. But Socrates back in the day, he'd do stuff like he'd go to the marketplace and he'd say to someone, oh, you know, why are you here today? And the person would say, oh, well, I've come to the marketplace. Well, why have you come to the marketplace? Oh, well, I want to buy things. All right, well, why do you want to buy things? Like, oh, well, you know, I have these goods and if I get these goods, then they make me happy. 
Oh, that make you happy. That means you must know what happiness is. Please, can you tell me a little bit about what happiness is? And the person would go, oh, well, it's, it's things that, you know, for example, give you pleasure. And so he'd go, okay, but isn't there, for example, situations that can be quite pleasurable, but at the same time, like overall, you can be a little bit unhappy about it. And you'd go, okay, yeah, I, I suppose. And Socrates would go, okay, so maybe it's not about pleasure. So what, you know, let, let's dig a little bit deeper into things. And so he just had this way of just really questioning the thoughts, the philosophies, almost the, the, the beliefs, but almost the superficial beliefs that people would have. And he'd go into the consequences of that and say, okay, well, if you mean this, then that must mean this, and then that must mean this. And, and suddenly their almost original idea is so distorted so even they can realise within themselves that, hold on here, I think I've missed a step or I've got a blind spot or it's, you know, I'm not resonating with this anymore. So there must be something that, you know, I've gotten wrong in a particular way. And, and that in some ways encapsulates kind of Socrates' two, I suppose, main elements that he's famous for. And the first one is that idea of knowing thyself. So Socrates had this just deep understanding of himself and this is where when he went and saw the Delphic Oracle it gave him such a or an issue like there was something to be so reconciled because he knew within himself that look I'm I'm don't feel like such a wise person I've got all these questions you know I don't necessarily have a whole lot of answers to things but at the same time if the gods are saying that I'm the wisest person in the world hold on that must mean that I've got something wrong because the gods are trying to tell me this and I believe Socrates was one of the first people to see the gods as moral exemplars rather than, you know, Zeus is up there and he's, you know, stealing this and, you know, really acting in particularly naughty ways that I probably won't get into on this podcast. But but Socrates basically looked at the gods and said, look, there's, there's a message in there. The gods aren't lying in this situation, so I have to look into it deeper and see what I can get out of it. So this idea of knowing thyself was a, a massive part of what Socrates was about. But the other part was in some ways what came at the end of that little confrontation that he'd have with someone where he'd basically just confront them in a way where they realised, hold on, I've actually got no idea what I'm talking about here. And I suppose to use a a bit of a French term, I can't necessarily think of a better term to use, but he realised that people would bullshit themselves in a way. And and so this almost realisation of the degree to which people bullshitted themselves was what they called aporia in ancient Greece. And that was a, a major factor in, in what Socrates was about. And I suppose another famous quote, the second famous quote from Socrates is, the unexamined life is not worth living. And in many ways, that just means that in order to live a fulfilling life, you have to go through this quite confronting, uncomfortable process at times of really delving deep into yourself, asking yourself these questions that might point out ways that, you know, you, you realise there's some contradictions in what you're thinking. You need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. But this idea of being confronted with the realisation that you've missed something or that you've got blind spots, this aporia, is something that is, was a, a central element to what Socrates did and it's something that will come up a little bit later in the podcast as well. Yes, well, as you're describing that, it reminds me of some things that happen in a psychotherapy process. And one of the things is a kind of reflection and exploring. A lot of what 
therapy involves. When someone comes in in pain, there might be certain patterns in their relationships that seem to be coming up, conflict and loss or confusion in relationships. People might feel that they're somewhat dissatisfied in their life or their work or people might feel at odds with their friendship groups in certain ways. And a whole lot of what therapy will be doing is to look to offer a safe place where someone can reflect and talk out loud and hear themselves expressing things. And really what you're looking to do is to help things go a little bit deeper. One way I think that was represented wonderfully in a cartoon was the cartoonist Michael Lunig, who showed a fellow who was walking along, this represents a psychotherapy client, a fellow who was walking along and he had the lid of his head open up and out of his head was this roll of carpet coming out forth from his head down onto the ground and then he'd be walking on this like circuit of carpet that would then sort of, um, again, more of it would come out of his head and then sort of in a sense go back into what he could walk on and there's this kind of loop going on and he had this expression which was let it out, let it out, let it all unravel. From your mind you will find a path on which to travel. So that's part of the knowing thyself. An unexamined life is not worth living. It's part of looking to explore more fully in more detail and more colour and more shading, getting more of an idea of what makes you tick, your reactions to things. So that's an aspect of therapy. But there's also an aspect of therapy which involves some kind of challenge, and it needs to. Often when people are depressed... It's a pattern of negative thinking that people have. Or if people feel anxious, it's a pattern of catastrophizing, like social anxiety. Oh, my friends didn't contact me about this social gathering. That means that basically they don't like me or you know, I'm, I'm losing friends, I'm, I'm not good company to other people. But you know, if you invite people to explore other reasons why you might not have been invited they might realize oh look actually it was a very limited number of friends and they all shared a certain interest they're going to see a, a movie or whatever that people knew that you that wasn't your taste in movies for example so it's a way of trying to get people to reflect a little bit more deeply and also challenge some of their ideas and in cognitive therapy that might be looking to take a shortcut sometimes and look at how people might have exaggerated thoughts about disapproval or, or failure or the need for success or how people might interpret loss or blame themselves for things that happen, all these different ways that our thoughts can become distorted. But one thing I'll mention with this is if therapists are too direct at challenging someone's thinking, then if someone's just spoken to as though they ought to think differently, it's not going to tend to work too well. And dare I say it can be Less experienced therapists can sometimes be too assertive in their ways of looking at encouraging people to think differently. It really helps if people can maybe come to certain realisations themselves about how their own thinking might be contradictory or even the notion of recognising how their thinking is not working for them. And these Socratic kind of questions, asking people further about their reactions to things and what that might mean and whether there's a different way of looking at it, but there are ways of going at it somewhat gently, there are ways of going at it in a more confrontational or challenging way. But all of that gets back to a Socratic dialogue 
because Socrates was able to ask these more innocent questions in some ways as well as ask questions that had a little bit more of a challenge. But in each situation, he's deeply interested in people getting to know themselves more because the wisdom that they'd gained from that could make a difference. I suppose the really interesting thing about that, like you'll know more about this than me, but it's my understanding that basically from Socrates, maybe for a couple of hundred years afterwards, but after that point, up until about Freud, people didn't really introspect in this way. Like I think you even made a comment to me the other day about, you know, people didn't really introspect until Freud. I think there's many things maybe that we take for granted from Freud. And one of them really seems to be that this almost language of introspection, this practice of introspection that we're very much developed in in modern society. And I even think maybe even more since the pandemic and things like this, like it's people's mental health literacy and psychological literacy has improved and I think it in some ways it comes from Socrates maybe through Freud through many other people in maybe the last hundred or so years that have developed that further. Yes and one thing that's uh, similar also between Socrates and Freud is realising that this is actually more complicated than it looks. We might think we know what makes us happy like you mentioned that example earlier or even what happiness is but also as Freud described we can deceive ourselves in different ways as well and so I think that's part of what Socrates was also on about when he questioned whether he was the wisest person and all the rest of it he realised that we can have a distorted view of things we can deceive ourselves for all sorts of reasons so there's a there's a respect for a kind of questioning where we look to be a little bit more objective in some ways but also where we look to go into a little bit more depth into our motivations and certainly Socrates and Freud were both on about that showing it's not just a simple thing to stop and reflect for five minutes what my reactions are to this or how I see this or that there's actually more to it than that there's deeper reflection that we can have than that. Well absolutely and I think that is something that Socrates realised like this idea that he had you know that gods have said that I'm the wisest of all but I just certainly don't think within myself I think after a time he started to realise that he was almost having this effect on people where he could induce this maybe sense of confusion within themselves and point out some of their blind spots and that in many ways gave him his answer because he said look I, I don't know I don't know what's going on and that's why I'm wise in some ways because I can question things I realise that I'm deceiving myself in a particular way I've got no idea what's going on and maybe to a further degree than everyone else, he was able to almost engage in this thinking, not of, you know, I, I don't know and I'm just completely confused about everything, but maybe more in a way that allowed him to more directly, more painfully in some ways, well, confront his capacity to bullshit himself. And that was the source of his wisdom. I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I like the way that you're kind of highlighting that both Socrates and Freud... Part of what they're on about is helping helping people be more aware of our blind spots. We're all going to have blind spots and the chances are if we're experiencing repeated disabling anxiety or depression or getting caught up with anger or having really strong persistent feelings of shame, the chances are a lot of that is going to come back to blind spots. And that doesn't necessarily make it easy to identify or even to change that but there are these methods that can help us identify distortions in our thinking more and that's a whole lot of what modern psychological therapy is on about. Well certainly and and look as we said we're we're going pretty simple with it today like 
I'd happily spend the next five hours talking about Socrates. But at the same time, I suppose, for the purposes of today's podcast, if we can almost get those ideas that he liked to question people in a way that it was almost a little bit argumentative at times, but he was very interested in rationality, in forming an argument, in finding wisdom in a particular situation. He recognised that people deceive themselves and he would almost go through this process to induce this state of, I believe, aporia, as they called it. So it's almost like the two elements that are uh, in some ways most important from Socrates are this style for arguing things and style for confronting people in a way that that allowed them to understand their blind spots a little bit more. So, of course, Socrates had a, a very famous student called Plato, and as Socrates was someone who d- he didn't write stuff down, so he'd literally just walk around the, the marketplace asking people these questions, having these conversations with people, and it's not as if he came up with a whole bunch of, say, like theories as we'd know them today. And the person who did come up with some of those theories was Plato. So Plato wrote about Socrates. A lot of Plato's dialogues that he wrote were Socrates talking to other people. And he wrote these dialogues in a way that essentially helped people to internalise Socrates. So they would read book after book of Socrates having these conversations with people and we still have access to many of these books today, which they're still just so, I think, profound and relevant in many ways to read. But Plato in some ways codified Socrates' philosophy in a little more depth than, well, well, Socrates hadn't codified any of his philosophy, but he took the practices that Socrates had of just walking around asking people these questions and put it into, in some ways, a little bit more of a structure, a little bit more maybe theoretical, written down, something that, that could be passed on a little bit more readily. And it was through, as I say, like these dialogues that he wrote where Plato seemed to have a little bit more of an emphasis on Socrates' capacity for argumentation. So he wasn't necessarily as interested in the confrontation side of things. He was interested in the the rationality and the wisdom of how he formulated those arguments. And look, Plato is, again, such a, a kind of profound figure. There's so many things that we could go into Plato in terms of spirituality and soul. And Plato had so many fascinating ideas. But I suppose for the purposes of today's podcast, one of the, th- the main things that he did was to, yeah, to codify and in many ways write down and distribute these ideas and practices that Socrates had. Yes, and what a practical contribution that is. But look, I will mention an aside about Plato that I just find remarkable. It shows the depth of wisdom that there can be in the past, which is not always recognised now. As you say, Plato was also interested in the soul and spiritual aspects of life and influenced a number of modern religions. But one thing I found absolutely fascinating, I only learned about it a few years ago, As you know, one of my interests, say, in the synchronicity field of looking at meaningful coincidences is helping people differentiate transpersonal experience, which is legitimate, like mystical experience that has a point to it, from psychosis or craziness. Because sometimes people have such amazing coincidences they wonder if they're going mad. I've written a couple of blogs about that. Now, the main person I know who wrote about that early was Plato. He wrote about it 2,500 years ago nearly and what he talked about was divine madness. He was looking to separate the notion of divine madness from madness or psychosis and he talked about one of the examples of divine madness was prophecy 
or being able to anticipate the future, or we might call it precognition. Now, some aspects of coincidences can sometimes help us anticipate the future. There are different examples I've written about that, ways that go beyond easy rational explanation. Now, modern psychology tends to ignore that because it's really hard to explain it rationally. But Plato simply described that as one of the forms of divine madness, along with religious rites and creativity and uh, other observations that he made. Another one was platonic love. So mentioning that there is something which I think Plato has given us more contribution in understanding that than anything else I've come across in modern psychology. So another reminder, it's worthwhile being open to the wisdom of the ancients. Well, certainly, and I think Plato's maybe experiencing a bit of a rise in popularity again, partly because I think people are a little bit more interested in spirituality beyond just some of the, the modern religions like Christianity and Islam, for example. And like I've, I've heard it described that basically not only did Plato come up with the very first psychological theory that we know about in history, his philosophy is in many ways the basis for just about all of modern spirituality, as you say, the modern religions like Islam, Christianity. I think Judaism is a little bit older, but these you know, massive kind of religions borrow so much from the philosophy of Plato. Yes, and then there's Jung, Jung talking about archetypes or certain forms that maybe influence what happens in the world. Well, Plato talked about ideal types. He talked about forms in a way that preceded the idea of archetypes. So he had a strong influence also on Jungian psychology, but just amazing how wide-ranging his influence was and is. Well, most certainly. And I suppose just for the purposes of today's podcast, again, it's another one. We could spend hours and hours and hours on this sort of stuff. Maybe we will one day because it's just fascinating. But I suppose the main thing to take from Plato for our podcast today is he codified, he wrote down many of Socrates' practices and philosophies, and he was very interested in this idea of rational argument. So something that was picked up on a little bit later on, so we'll get back to that uh, in just a little while. But of course, Plato had a student, another super fascinating, super famous guy, Aristotle. And look, uh, we'll skip over Aristotle a little bit, which in some ways, you know, my eye starts twitching when I say that, because how can you talk about Socrates and Plato without at least mentioning Aristotle? And there was so many different contributions that Aristotle made. I suppose just one kind of fascinating thing about Aristotle was, so his father, I believe, was a physician, was a doctor. And so he, I suppose, had a slightly different emphasis from Plato in some ways, whereas Plato uh, studied, I believe, under Pythagoras, he was a mathematician. So maybe thought about things in, in slightly more precise terms, unchanging terms. Aristotle was very interested in, for example, how things grow and change and develop over time. And so I believe Aristotle studied under Plato for about 20 years and they ended up going their separate ways. And Aristotle had this hilarious quote where he said, I love Plato, but I love the truth more. So it suggests that although I'm sure they had a great relationship right up to the end, there was maybe a, a sense of slightly trying to differentiate himself from Plato. 
Yes, there'll be many ways and many walks of life where the student will look to move beyond the master and separate from them. And I think that that uh, quote is an example of Aristotle doing that. But I'll just mention an aside of Aristotle, which I think is really interesting in relation to positive psychology. Many people listening to this podcast will know of our reference to character strengths. Many people will have done their own character strengths questionnaire and understand that the notion of character strengths, when we look at things like courage or persistence, or humour or love of knowledge, all of these things, these are positive virtues, but people also know there can be a downside in overdoing your strengths. We look to use what strengths that we can because it helps us live well, but also we want to use them without overdoing them because, for example, if you overdo your courage, that can be recklessness. If you overdo prudence, you might become overcautious and not really achieve anything. Now, where did this idea come from? It came from Aristotle. Aristotle talked about the golden mean. When he talked about the golden mean, he was talking about using your virtues in a moderate kind of way. Still, you look to draw on your virtues to live well, but don't overdo it. Don't underdo it, but don't overdo it. Look for that sort of, in a sense, happy medium, the golden mean. That didn't come from Martin Seligman, that came from Aristotle, that idea. And of course the golden mean is something that we see in a whole range of other areas, like for example science and biology, the golden mean shows up in like the Fibonacci sequence for example and and things like this, so it it gets across certainly the idea of of Aristotle's slightly more biological flavour than Plato and and there is, well again, so much more that we could go into with Aristotle, he's honestly one of the most interesting figures in history Uh, But for the purposes of today's podcast, there isn't as much in maybe Aristotle's philosophy that's going to help us get to the Stoics, which, of course, is is where we're going to end up in this uh, one or maybe even two episodes, Dad. Now I'm looking at the time. But Aristotle, of course, he had a student and that student was Alexander the Great. And this is where we're going to get into a little bit more of the history of this sort of stuff, because there's a, a, a very interesting, I suppose, context to to some of this stuff. And so basically... When Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, when they were you know, living and, and practicing their philosophy and teaching people, the world was very different to the world of, for example, Alexander in his later life. And as I said at the very start, so ancient Athens was what we call a polis. So a polis is basically a, a city-state, but it meant that when you were living in ancient Athens... Uh, you would be living around a whole range of people who shared well, essentially the same values as you. They spoke the same language. They worshipped the same gods. Your ancestors lived in the same place. Your history was basically in, in, from the area that you lived in at that time. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, for example, travelling away to live. People would often live in the city-state that they were born in. And the other aspect of that was that people knew many people in the government So people felt very connected to the rulers in society in many ways. They felt that they had some influence over that. Of course, Alexander the Great goes out and conquers, you know, the known world. He spreads his Greek ideas. Uh, People who may have originally been living in in Greece, for example, had travelled out with with Alexander and then find themselves, for example, living in Afghanistan. Or they might be living in somewhere like Syria or somewhere a long way away from where they first grew up. And so Alexander died at the young age of 32. 
I believe he had a son who was, you know, was quite young, so he was killed off in order for someone else to basically, you know, grab, grab the th- throne and take power. And when Alexander died, his kingdom was split up into four different kingdoms. So I believe the most famous one is the, the Ptolemaic Empire, which went on to take over Egypt. And of course, Cleopatra was part of the Ptolemaic Empire. So there was a, a, a vastly changing world at this time where instead of living around people who had you know shared language, shared religion, shared connection with you, the world was a lot more broken up than that. It was a lot more chaotic. You were living around people who might not necessarily speak the same language. They might worship different deities to you. And it was basically a, a, a much more chaotic period for this time in what they call the Hellenistic era. And it's so interesting to look back at this time and you can see how, for example, the art changed. It became a lot more kind of frantic and chaotic. It was a lot more realistic as well. There was some change in in, some of the gods as people tried to, in many ways, integrate different gods. So they would take a, a Greek god and an Egyptian god and put them together to create this kind of integrated god that would relate to more people who lived in that area. The other interesting thing that came out of that time was that there were a lot of gods that were developed around this idea of the divine mother. So it was almost like people had so little connection to where they were living. It was like they had no home. And it was something that Douglas Porteous and Sandra Smith, uh, they coined a term domicide. So like we think this, you know, side to do with killing, domice, like the home. It was an idea that, you know, people's home was dead. It was as if they felt no connection to the place that they were living. One of the interesting things that developed out of that time was, yeah, like more deities related to this divine mother because it was as if people felt so much more chaotic in the place that they lived. They couldn't necessarily rely on their own mother for this sense of safety and and calmness in a way. And so they would create these deities related to the divine mother which of course you know in christianity that idea is is so prominent with the idea of the virgin mary so i just find it so interesting that i suppose through the chaos of this time some of the philosophies as we'll explain in a moment were developed that we even recognize and relate to today yes that uh, kind of fragmentation that you describe so the empire breaking up into different parts and the confusion, the sense of loss of home that people had. Look, these days we'd describe that by a particular word too, traumatic. There'd be a lot of that it would be very dislocating. And so you could see that people would be yearning for something else, uh, including that sort of sense of um, nurturance or support or whatever. But yeah, that, that chaos you're describing would have been like a kind of trauma. And so it was something that obviously at the time a lot of people were thinking about, just this sense of chaos, a sense of how things had really changed, almost wanting to make make sense of a lot of that sort of stuff. And that leads us to uh, our next philosopher, uh, Epicurus was his name. And Epicurus was an absolutely fascinating figure. I suppose to just a little way of remembering this guy is that this will mainly make sense for our Australian listeners, but I believe the Age newspaper used to have a a kind of lifestyle, a home and lifestyle magazine called Epicure. And it was about, you know, going out to nice restaurants and, you know, all the stuff that you can have in your home to make it nicer and this sort of stuff. And that came in some ways from, I think, the distorted philosophy of Epicurus, and we'll get into him in just a moment, but I suppose one of the but uh, by distorted you mean a misunderstood yeah exactly aspect, well, yeah. well I think these days we almost associate Epicurus with this idea of hedonism 
of seeking pleasure. Not in, like nice food and eating yeah, banquets exactly. and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's not necessarily, I think, what Epicurus was trying to get at. And one of the first things that I just think is so interesting from Epicurus was that idea of what we spoke about at the start, like this idea of the philosopher being the physician of the soul. That came from Epicurus. And basically before that time, so before Alexander had taken over the world in even Socrates' time, uh, wisdom was about avoiding foolishness. So it was about creating rational arguments. It was about putting yourself forward in a way that was going to persuade people to well, get them to vote with you sort of thing. But Epicurus had this interesting quote where he said, the words of that philosopher who offers no therapy for human suffering are empty and vain. So he was looking at things and saying, look, it's not enough to just sort of have a philosophy, even practice philosophy. If this philosophy isn't alleviating suffering for other people, well, what good is it? It was almost like he was responding to the way of the world at that time. There was so much chaos. He felt that as a philosopher, he maybe had a little bit of a slight more handle on that and felt that he could well, impact things in a slightly more positive way. And so in many ways, his philosophy tried to draw some of the practicality out of the other philosophers. That's a fascinating thing, looking at the healing aspect of philosophy, and I tend to think that they were associated from the start. And what I was going by is the Temple of Apollo at Delphi that had the inscription, Know Thyself, at the front of the Temple of Apollo. Well, Apollo was the father of Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And so to me, that linked that notion of know thyself with healing. But from what you're describing, that notion really came in with Epicurus, the notion of the importance of wisdom for easing human suffering. So that really is the roots, again, of, of modern therapy, looking to alleviate suffering, again, drawing on philosophy or these kind of principles or ways of questioning to help that happen. Well, certainly, and... and Look, Epicurus, but also the other people that we'll speak about today, like even Plato, Aristotle, we'll speak about, of course, the Stoics. Uh, but these schools of philosophy, in many ways, what they were trying to do was to look at what Socrates' practices were, and they were trying to codify that in a way, or they were trying to create a system in which these ideas could be distributed in a way. And so the way that Epicurus and the Epicureans did that was, as I say, they had this idea that the philosopher is like the physician of the soul. So what does a physician do? What does a doctor do? They look at, say, for example, diagnosis and prescription. So they were in many ways looking at the, the problem and the solution. And so the way that Epicurus diagnosed the problem, it's oh, in some ways it's a little bit of a leap. We don't necessarily have the time to, to fully get into it here, but he realised that people had an anxiety about death. And so where that came through was, oh, the way that I think of it was people were living in, in some ways, a, a slightly smaller, slightly more closed off society. So, you know, you wake up, you go to school, this is what you should learn about. This is what you should do in adulthood. This is what you should do in late adulthood. There was a whole well, society and system around how you should live your life. And then all of a sudden you're living amongst all these people who spoke different languages, who had different religions, and it made you question things in a way to go, hold on, 
am I spending my entire life on the wrong thing? Like this person over here seems quite happy about some things, but I'm not trained in their philosophy at all. I don't understand many of the ideas that cause this happiness within them. It was almost like in living amongst other people, it helped people to realize that, hold on, there's so many more ways that we can go about, you know, this, this thing called life. And People experience, as I say, a deep sense of anxiety about their life. It wasn't as if they knew, you know, this is the problem that I've got or I'm not doing things in this way. It was just almost a deep underlying sense of, hold on, you know, I don't have all the answers here and I don't necessarily know how to get all the answers in this situation. I might be living a long, long way away from my family. I might be living a long, long way from where my ancestors live, where I've got a real sense of the world and the community. I have no connection to to where I'm living now. So it wasn't as if people had a a real sense of, of exactly what they were fearful of. It was in many ways, according to Epicurus, just a a more generalized anxiety about, well, I've only got a a particular time on this earth and now I'm not sure with all these other options and directions I could go in, whether or not I'm spending my time in in the best way. Well, that's fascinating in terms of, again, more modern psychology, because what you're describing about that kind of anxiety, Freud had a particular term called free-floating anxiety. Freud talked about phobic anxiety, like, again, you might have a fear of dogs or a particular situation, but also there's this free-floating anxiety. And I think what you're describing there, this ancient culture that had a challenge because they were confronted with many more different possible ways of living and maybe confused about how they might live, I think there's a parallel to modern times where when people finish school, for example... There are so many choices that people have these days. There's so many different university courses that used to be once, for example, with young women that basically they'd be looking to be steered towards teaching or nursing, a limited number of things. There'd be, for uh, many males, there'd be a certain way, they'd be guided to do certain things. Now these days there's so many more choices, even people choosing what gender that they identify with. There's so many more choices these days and so maybe a lot more confusion that goes with it. Maybe that helps account for why there might be more free-floating anxiety with many young people these days. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And and in many ways, Epicurus, I think, realised that, probably not in a modern context, but in terms of in his time, he spoke about the idea that we suffer because we don't manage your anxiety. So he thought, look, we can't necessarily control our imagination. He thought we can't necessarily control our thinking. So we suffer from these anxieties that in many ways cripple our ability to well, understand and get a grip on the world. It's almost like once people experience this anxiety, they would ruminate and they would feel that, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing in this particular situation. They would lose a bit of direction. It was almost like this, this spiraling process where it took agency away from people because people would just, you know, think, oh, what am I doing? Am I spending my time correctly? Am I spending my life correctly? Like these are quite big questions for people to have. 
And Epicurus realized that in many ways, if we didn't get on top of some of these questions and we weren't quite deliberate in how to go about, I suppose, finding the solution to some of these problems, it would just get worse and worse and worse. And so Epicurus's whole big thing was in many ways paying attention to what we set our heart on. Because if we're not deliberate about these things, then well, ironically, we might get sucked into some of the more hedonistic pleasures in life. But Epicurus was all about pay attention to what delivers us the most meaning because then we can further cultivate those things. And for example, friendship was one thing that was massive for Epicurus. He realized that we can lose our wealth, we can lose our fame, we can lose our fortune. But if we had friendship, then we could cope with many of those losses. Well, it sounds again remarkable to me how much Epicurus, so over 2,000 years ago, another example of someone who anticipated some of the key themes that come up in common modern psychotherapy sessions. There's a notion of death anxiety. I know they've been exploring that more in the cognitive behavioural therapy field. It's been a theme that's been discussed more in the last 10 years than the decades prior. And also this notion of meaning how much that's emphasised these days in positive psychology. And, and the way you describe that and what Epicurus was looking at, it sounds so relevant to themes like the midlife crisis that we've talked about in a previous episode where people experience a whole lot of confusion. It partly relates to having a sense of mortality and concerns about that, whether people are living their life in the right way. And Epicurus had something of a, of a solution to that as well where he was saying, you know, pay attention to what is most meaningful to you. And one of the things that strikes me about that too is including when people are experiencing a midlife crisis or confusion or they're not sure what direction to go in life, that paying attention, it's not something that might happen in five minutes or two weeks or sometimes even a couple of months. Sometimes that takes a while to bubble up for people to really notice what is most important to them. There's something about that theme of becoming aware of what's most important to you which is a deeper kind of theme and this whole attitude of reflecting knowing yourself but maybe being patient with that is important because you know maybe Epicurus didn't decide that friendship was one of the most important things maybe he didn't decide that in five minutes he probably did quite a bit of reflection before he arrived at that. Well, I think absolutely. And uh, it's just that idea of Epicurus about, and this is something that, as I say, it'll come up a little bit, but this idea of setting your heart upon something. It was like Epicurus realised that, well, this process of setting your heart on something, it goes on in the background anyway. And so we have to be really deliberate and we have to be get on the front foot, for lack of a better term, about what we set our heart on because Epicurus, as we say, this death anxiety was something that, that he thought was a major part of, of many of the chaos that came out of that time. It's interesting that notion as well. If you don't set your heart deliberately on something which is more worthwhile, then in a sense you might be distracted by something else. That is echoed in a theme uh, by Jung that if people had less of a religious sensibility like in the past when maybe more people had a religious focus and that would draw their attention and give them structure and meaning in life, Jung said 
people would tend to be distracted by other kind of things that almost replaced that religious feeling. It might be an addiction. It might be some other kind of focus that people have. It might be amassing wealth or something else. The notion that if people don't have something that they set their heart on or if people don't have something which evokes a kind of deep meaning, such as religion, they'll tend to be distracted by other things that they get hung up on. And that seems to be an idea that, that very much well, directly in many ways follows on from, from Epicurus. But I suppose that's where we, we better leave it for today, Dad, because the next school of thought that we're getting into is the cynics who will help us get onto the Stoics. So we're, we're almost right at the feet of the Stoics at this point, having gone through Epicurus and I figure, yeah, we'll, we'll have a little bit of a, a break for today's episode and we'll come back with the cynics and one of, I think, just the, the most intriguing characters in all of philosophy, a guy called Diogenes. So, oh, Dad, we we'll, we'll, might have to leave it there for today's episode, but thank you for, for indulging me with all this sort of stuff. As we say, we're about halfway through, but oh, it's, it's been uh, good to get into to some of the deeper aspects of, of well, ancient philosophy. Well, I'm fascinated by it, Rowan, at a number of levels. And uh, as you mentioned at the start, we'd likely make two sessions of this because there's so much in it. But a couple of things stand out to me, and one's the more obvious notion that there are all these remarkable philosophers over 2,000 years ago that have contributed so much to modern psychological therapy. And just noticing that and recognising that may help us appreciate some of those themes that come through in modern psychotherapy, probably the core theme being the importance of our perception or interpretation of situations. There's so many different ways of looking at situations. We might feel as though we have a certain take or perspective and that's the way it is, but all of these philosophers were bringing it to our attention that there's a lot that's very subjective in our point of view and yet our point of view and ways of thinking will make a difference. And I think that's such a profound kind of understanding and I would contrast that with another approach to mental health which I think could be overused. Sometimes it's very worthwhile but could be overused. The notion of prescribing medication to deal with depression, anxiety, reactions, a range of other difficulties, sometimes in such a reductionistic way as though, oh, look, if we do further study with brain science, if we only isolate the chemicals that are too much or too little in someone's brain that contributes to depression, we can help treat that with pills. There are limits to that kind of approach and unless our mental health interventions include something of philosophy, something of wisdom, something about choice in the way we look at things, I think we're not going to be getting the best results for people dealing with the challenges that they face, including mental health challenges. Well, I think that's absolutely true and, and something that will certainly be expanded in the next episode because that's where we'll really get into stoicism and some of the depth in that. And oh, to be honest, as, as we've spoken about over the last couple of episodes, stoicism is just that. It's, it's such a seed of modern psychology. So much of modern psychology grew out of stoicism. But I suppose just a, a little quick 
in some ways a recap for today's episode in terms of the way that I think about some of these things in, in quite simple terms as we've gone over them in simple terms today dad I almost wince at the thought of of just how simple we've been about some of these things but in the interest of uh, the podcast today I think it's been appropriate but if we go back to say Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus in many ways, what these people were trying to do is they were trying to, as you say, it was about recognising that we have perspectives on things, trying to cultivate a, a good life for themselves. And and for most of them, that was, well, how do you cultivate the most meaningful life possible? And so that's, uh, that's yeah, something that we'll, we'll certainly expand on and, and maybe pick up next episode as well. Yes, uh, the healing potential of meaning. <laughs>